0: Thank you all for being here this morning, and happy Mother's Day. Again, uh, we are a little short on seats this morning because of the work being done in back of the sanctuary, but that will be uh, resolved in about three weeks, I believe, and we'll have a number of additional seats, and I hope you didn't find the parking too cramped. We'll have some new parking spaces soon, too. Thank you for being here to worship the Lord with us on Mother's Day. And um, we are continuing a brand new series uh, that will continue throughout May and until the end of June on Elijah and Elisha, two Old Testament prophets whose stories are found in the books of First and Second Kings. Pastor Andrew gave us a great introduction to this uh, study last week and really did an excellent job laying the historical background. Uh, The context in which Elijah emerges so abruptly. Now, as you are uh, studying this passage on your own, David Holcomb has prepared a nice little help for us for either small group or individual study with some questions and uh, uh, study guidelines on the lives of Elijah and Elisha. You can pick these up at our resource center, which is to your right as you exit the double doors this morning. If you were here last week, you learned that the uh, setting in which Elijah rose arose before the people of Israel was a setting of real spiritual darkness. People were much given over to the worship of uh, one particular idol, the, uh, the false god called Baal. Uh, some say Baal, Baal might be uh, a little closer, you see a picture of uh, something that was dug up from... Uh, close to biblical times, the statue there. The word Baal actually means Lord or Master, so there are different idols associated with that title. But in this particular time in which Elijah had his ministry, Baal was understood to be a god of rain and thunder. And so, of course, people look to this uh, false god, this idol, for provision for their crops and so forth. And um, Perhaps the time in which Elijah arose is best described in the book of 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 33, where we're told that a man named Ahab ruled in Israel, and Scripture says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And that was saying a lot, because there were some evil kings that preceded Ahab. His wife Jezebel was widely known for her wickedness, for having had a number of the Lord's prophets put to death. And this is the setting in which Elijah abruptly appears and begins his ministry. Elijah's name is significant. Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. The name Elijah uh, could be called a... a, uh, A God-bearing name, a theophoric name is a name that has one of the names of God in the name itself. For example, uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, has that A-H on the end of his name, which is a reference to Yahweh, Jehovah, or typically we would say the Lord. The name Isaiah means Yahweh, or the Lord is salvation. The name Jeremiah means Yahweh establishes or lifts up. The E-L in a name often represents God as well. The name Daniel means God is my judge. The name Ezekiel means uh, may God strengthen. So Elijah's got both the E-L and the A-H, and his name means my God is Yahweh. And it's significant that he emerges in the midst of this idolatry in which people were worshiping Baal as their God, as their Lord, he emerges with the name Elijah, meaning my God is Yahweh. Now, there are references to Elijah throughout the Bible after this point. Uh, He's mentioned in the very last book of the Old Testament, which is interesting. In fact, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, you'll see it on the screen, um, when the prophet gives these words from the Lord, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, what does that mean? Elijah the prophet was dead by this time. Well, Jesus gives us the inspired uh, commentary on this verse in Matthew 11 when he says all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and here he means John the Baptist, Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. That does not mean that Elijah was reincarnated in John the Baptist. It simply means that John the Baptist came in that spirit, that power of Elijah. In fact, that is exactly what the Gospel of Luke tells us. Before John the Baptist was born, the angel Gabriel came to his father, told him what to name the baby, to name him John, and said he will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, he will appear abruptly and proclaim the way of the Lord. So this was characteristic of Elijah's life. He's mentioned throughout Scripture. I'll skip over the other references and just simply say this. When we study these passages in the Bible about great Old Testament heroes, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, David, uh, and read the mighty things they've done, The scripture doesn't tell us these remarkable things, merely so we'll learn more about the prophet or the leader or the judge. Rather, so we'll learn more about God. Elijah's ministry, while it points to the future, the coming of John the Baptist, above all things, teaches us about God and how he works in and for his people. So I'd like to begin this morning with with that question as we look at this passage that Grace has read. What does this passage teach us about God? You know, we, we come to the Bible sometimes, and particularly these Old Testament stories, um, often wanting to receive something for ourselves to meet some need in our lives. And that's not bad. The Bible says that Scripture has given us to encourage us, to teach us, It guides us, often brings comfort and healing to us. But the most important reason, I think, for the giving of Scripture is to reveal God Himself. And I think the the most important question we could ever ask when we come to some part of the Old Testament, perhaps it's a part we don't understand particularly well, is to say, what does this teach me about God? How can this help me to know God better and love Him more? So I'd like to begin with that question. What does this passage from 1 Kings teach us about God? Well, first, I think it teaches us that He rules, God rules over His creation, even when it may not appear that He does. This time in the life of Israel, God's chosen people, the people whom God had called out of their slavery in Egypt to follow Him, The people to whom God gave all of his laws through Moses, the Ten Commandments, God's chosen people, were given over to idolatry. It was a time of incredible spiritual darkness in Israel. And at times like that, people may say, does God even exist? Is he really in control? If God is in control, why is life like this? Why are things as they are? The passage teaches us that God does rule over his creation even when it may not appear that he does, and he often demonstrates his power to show his rule and authority over idols to turn people back to himself. In the midst of this worship of Baal, the God who is associated with rain and thunder Elijah, seemingly out of nowhere, appears. First mention of him in the Bible in 1 Kings 17, verses 1 through 5, we read this Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, Ahab was the evil king of Israel. He had built an altar for the worship of Baal. He was an ungodly man married to an ungodly woman, Jezebel. And Elijah, out of nowhere, appears to this Baal worshiper, says, there's not going to be any rain for some years except by my word. God is going to break the back of this idol who was worshipped for the provision of rainfall by stopping the rain through the words of his prophet Elijah. The point is simply this. In spiritually dark times, God still rules. Adversity is often the backdrop for God's greatest work. I think about the time of Noah in the building of the ark. So we read about that time in history in Genesis chapter 6. There's perhaps no more spiritually dark time recorded in the Bible, because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 that the thoughts, the intentions of everyone's heart were only evil all the time. There was the exception of Noah, righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And during this time of spiritual darkness, God showed his power, both his judgment and his power. Adversity is often the backdrop for his greatest demonstrations of power. So the passage is teaching us, among other things, that God rules over His creation even when it doesn't appear so. Secondly, it teaches us this, He works in, through, and for those who trust His Word wherever they are. Now, it's interesting that after making His pronouncement to Ahab, the king of Israel, that it's not going to rain except by My Word, God called Elijah away to a place where he would be fed uh, by ravens bringing food and the brook Cherith bringing him him water. And then God spoke to Elijah and told him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to feed you there. So he arose, he went to Zarephath, which was some distance away beyond the, the borders of Israel, he goes to this land of Sidon, and there he encounters this widow. She's out gathering sticks, and he approaches her for something to eat, and she says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and I'm gathering a couple of sticks, and I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Wow. And what does he say to her? Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Can you believe that? That's incredibly selfish. First make me a cake and bring it to me, and then afterward, whatever's left, you go make something for yourself. Now, that's a fairly bold pronouncement. What happens? He goes on to say, for thus says the Lord... The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. Now that is remarkable to me, remarkable faith. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. God works in, through, and for people who believe His Word wherever they are. Now, it's worth noting that this woman lived in Sidon. And if we were to read back in 1 Kings 16 and verse 31, we would find this about the evil King Ahab. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Sidon, where this woman lived, this widow of Sidon, was a center for the worship of Baal. One commentator called it Baalsville, Baalsville, where this woman lived. So she's living in the midst of a bunch of people of unbelief. She is not a Jew. She's not an Israelite. And that's the person to whom God sends her. Centuries later, Jesus Christ would come. He's beginning his public ministry, announcing who he is to the people of Israel. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and verse 25 he gives a rebuke to some of his Jewish hearers who he knew were not going to receive his word but were going to reject him. And note what he says in Luke 4 and verse 25. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who is a widow. Now that's a rebuke. He said there were a lot of widows in Israel to whom God could have sent Elijah, but he didn't. He sent him to the land of Zarephath because there was a woman who would believe his word from the Lord. The point it's simply this this is prefiguring pointing to the fact that one day the gospel of Jesus Christ would be for all people not just Israelites not just Jews as Jesus would say to his followers go make disciples of all the nations that's one reason that we're a church that's committed not only to serving in local missions and ministries here in community but to unreached peoples around the world because that's the mandate, the call of God to take his message to all nations, to all ethnicities. God still rules when it appears he does not, and he works in and through those who trust his word wherever they might be. There's a third truth about God that we see in this story of Elijah and the widow, though, and that is that he, God alone, can bring life from death as Grace read a moment ago, the son of the widow, her only son, got sick and died. And so the widow comes to Elijah and says, what have you done? Have you come to me to bring my sins to remembrance? Have you brought judgment to me? So Elijah did what he could only do, and that is cry out to the Lord. And he prays and said, Lord, let this child's life come into him again and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. I think this is the first resurrection from the dead that's recorded in the Bible. And it, it reminds me a lot of an event in the life of Jesus. Because Jesus also raised from the dead the only son of a widow. The story's told in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, where we read this about Jesus. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. And behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and the Lord saw her. He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. People thought, here's another great prophet like Elijah. But he was one far greater than Elijah. This is not the only person Jesus would raise from the dead. He would also raise his, his friend Lazarus from death. But more importantly, Jesus in his own death on the cross would make provision for the resurrection of all who would have faith in him, for the eternal life of all who would have faith in him. It's an interesting thing. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the record of many people of faith in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 begins with these words, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their uh, commendation. What the writer is saying is that the people in our Old Testament, people like Abraham, Moses, David, people like this widow, I think that's perhaps to whom the writer refers when he says women receive back their dead by resurrection. These people had faith and they were considered accepted, commended uh, to God by their faith. Sometimes people ask the question, how were people in the Old Testament saved if they were saved? And the answer is simply, they were saved by grace through faith. They were saved by the grace of God through faith that believed God, faith that looked forward to the salvation He would provide, just as we, by grace through faith, are saved Faith that looks back to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus. The New Testament gives this, the ministry of Jesus and his work on the cross. And in that sense, we have the full picture that they did not have. We read these words at the end of the book of Hebrews. And all these, and it's talking about the list of people recorded in our Old Testament. All these, though commended through their faith, they believed God. They acted on God's word. They trusted Him. But they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be perfect. Well, Well, what was promised? I mean, the widow of Zarephath got her son back from the dead. There's something greater promised. This is looking forward to what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the whole book of Hebrews will, will teach us that this something better has to do with the fact that the Son of God himself came and gave his life as the final sacrifice for sins upon the cross. That there he would bear the full weight of our sin and our judgment and take our place so that through our faith in him, We would receive resurrection from spiritual death. We would receive eternal life. We would be declared by God just. That is justified on the basis of what Jesus had done. The Old Testament points us ultimately to this coming of Jesus. And so as we close our reflection on this passage... I'd like to ask you this important question. I think it's the most important question that you and I can ever consider and deal with in our lives. And it's this. Have I experienced the justification provided by Jesus' death and resurrection? Again, justification means being declared righteous, just, forgiven by God. And we're justified by the grace of God. It's His gift through our faith in Jesus and what He has done. As the Apostle Paul said, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can never be good enough to work your way to God. If you could, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. You can only acknowledge your sin and your need for his forgiveness and come humbly to him saying, God, I've sinned. I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. But I'm going to place my faith in you and in what your word says. That he, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He did what I could never do. And so I place my faith in him. It's the most important decision you can ever make on this earth. Secondly, is God calling me to turn away from any idol? These stories of the Old Testament, these accounts, point out the the human nature to be placing trust in lesser things than God himself. We may think people that did that were pretty ignorant to worship a statue or a pole or something like that or to think that that's the source of their rain, their crops. But the New Testament teaches us that things like covetousness, can be idols. An idol is anything that steals the devotion of the heart away from the Lord himself. Maybe there's something you and I need to turn away from. We need God to show us that. And then finally, how is God calling me to trust his word? Is there something in your life about which you know God has spoken clearly, you know his will, but you're not doing it? He's calling you to turn to him to trust his word to submit to him let's pray about these things as we prepare to close this morning father we thank you for the guidance the encouragement the teaching of your word pray the Holy Spirit would be at work, at work mightily in this room now, particularly in the life of anyone who has never embraced the salvation Jesus has provided. And if you know that's true of you or you're uncertain as to whether you've embraced that salvation, I would encourage you to simply honestly tell God you recognize your sin and you believe Jesus died to pay the debt for that sin and you're ready to follow him as your Lord asking God by grace to be your Savior and Lord. Maybe you're recognizing that there's something in your life that God does not want in your life. Maybe there's something in which you've been trusting that God does not want you to place your trust in. It's getting in the way of your wholehearted trust in Him. And Maybe today you need to tell God that you're ready to turn from that and turn to Him. Maybe there's a way in which you need to trust his word and begin to live by faith and not by sight. Father, would you help us now with these things we pray in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.